Welcome to the Cap City Church podcast. This is a recording of our Sunday message. We pray that you're encouraged and challenged as you listen to it. Enjoy. There's something I'd like you to do is think for a moment. Close your eyes, if you don't mind. Close your eyes and I'd like you to think of what things in your life bring you joy. What things in your life bring you joy? Maybe at the moment there isn't anything particularly because you're going through a hard time, but think back to the times, of the occasions when something brought you great joy. Now, if you're brave enough, would you turn to the person next to you, someone near you, and if you've got nobody near you, you're welcome to go and find somebody to get near to, to if you don't mind, you know, uh, somebody invading your space or whatever. Just slip along to them. You don't have to, but slip along and just say, this is what gives me joy. This is what gave me joy. Oh, dear. Awkward. <laughs> go on. Go for it. Now, a little bit about what we're doing at the moment is not just sharing joy, but actually rejoicing with each other. And that's what rejoicing does. As we share joy, it becomes something which is infectious. Anybody like to tell us some of the things that make them, give them joy? Anybody want to call out some of the things? Landros, we're not surprised. <laughs> And then Hannah. <laughs> it's a good job she's not in here, isn't it? <laughs> no, no. Anyone else? Food. Food. I heard food being mentioned here. You know, good food. Good food. Not any old food. Good food. Especially when you've made it. Especially when the Right, make a note of that, everyone, you know. <laughs> Invite yourself round for food. <laughs> Anything else? My dog. Your dog. That's, yeah, I've seen that on <laughs> Instagram. Yeah. Children. Children. Yeah. Yeah. Riding a bike. Riding a bike. Yeah, I can identify with that. Yeah. Oh, I've made it really awkward for myself. <laughs> Blue sky. <laughs> Blue sky, yeah. It's lovely, isn't it? I remember being in a gymnasium when I was in teacher training college, and um, we all had to do gym. And I hated it in school, so I hated it even more that as a trainee teacher I had to do it. But the one benefit was 
right up around this gymnasium were these beautiful windows. And at the end of the session, which is torture to someone like me, they lay us all down on the floor and they said, just relax. And I could look up and see these blue skies with fluffy white clouds. And I tell you what, yes, I had a joy moment at that point. It was worth, the agony was worth it just for that moment in the, in the gymnasium. There we go. Anybody want to venture any others? Sorry, cold? Cold winter mornings. Gosh, you've got to be the only one that likes that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 It is on the other side of the glass, you know, when you're looking out with a cup of coffee. Yeah. <laughs> uh, great. Okay. Well, the next couple of weeks, next three weeks, we're going to be looking at joy in different capacities. When you look in the New Testament, and I don't want to bore you with Greek words or anything like that, I was tempted, and then I thought, no, there's no point, because um, it's not really going to interest many of you that much. But there are just a few words that are used. Joy is one, obviously. Rejoicing is another, and gladness is another. And I suppose happy is one as well. And all of them seem to actually engender this idea of celebration, this, in, this idea that you living, live in a life that is in a place of completeness, that shalom peace in God. So much so that even in the midst of trials, there's that ability when we allow the Spirit of God to just work in our lives that we can draw on that joy that's deep down. It doesn't necessarily mean we'll go around grinning in the midst of real pain and difficulty, but it does mean that there's that hope. There is that sense of God's in control. There's that sense of this will not last, whatever it is we're going through. There is that sense in which, you know, we'll come out of this. There is a hope. There is a future. And there are times when we get to actually celebrate it as well. And I like this idea because, uh, you know, some of the words, you know, like rejoicing is actually very expressive. It's something, it, it engenders, the word itself engenders a sense of partying. And I quite like that. Having grown up in a, uh, you know, Pentecostal background where the only time you ever saw people uh, rejoicing was in worship. You know, they could sing with gusto and all the rest. But, uh, you know, a lot of the time, you know, particularly the, the little church I grew up in in, uh, in Morriston, you know, it was you were hard done by to see anybody crack a smile. You know, you used to think, where's the joy of the Lord? And they say, it's in my heart. Well, come on, let it, <laughs> let it get to your face a little bit, you know. Break out. Because the scripture is full of joy, full of mentions of joy there for each one of us. And God wants us to come to a point where we can actually live in that joy in such a way that life becomes, at the drop of a hat, a party for him. God wants us to party with him. 
He wants us to actually be able to just enjoy. Now, some years ago, I got to um, enjoy an evening with some Syrian refugees. And these guys, they were Muslim and uh, a family. And I tell you, I've never had so much fun because they didn't have alcohol. They wouldn't have alcohol. But I tell you what, we danced together. We had a lot of fun. And uh, they put all sorts of music on and they even got, because in their culture, the men dance with the men and the women dance with the women. I've never before in my life had a great big huge fellow just coming up to me and shimmying in front of me. <laughs> that was a, a real eye-opener, I tell you. I didn't know quite how to respond. Um, I think I was supposed to sort of go back al along the room and do it back to him, but, uh, but there we go. Yeah, but these guys could party. And then they said to us, what do you do to celebrate? Do you dance to party par and party, you know, in this way? And uh, it took me back to my upbringing where partying and all that sort of thing was regarded as no, Christians don't party, you know, and it's, uh, no. You might sit in the same room and have a chat together and a cup of tea and uh, there'd be no wine. There'd be, uh, you know, it would all be very circumspect, but you just didn't do that sort of thing. And, uh, but it also, when my son got married, we were, he was married a Swedish girl, I realized that I was at a disadvantage because at their wedding, one of the things they do is dance. The Swedes are very good. They, t they learn to dance to waltz and various other things in school. It's all part of their education. So I, you know, I said to Carl, I'm, I'm not going to be outdone by this. So off we went and we got some dance lessons. We did Ciroc. And guys, I tell you what, it's easy. Because <laughs> the guy doesn't do much other than tell show by different moves he shows the woman what to do and the woman does a lot of twirling and, and things like this and you know gets thrown into your arms every now and again and that sort of thing so it's quite an easy dance you know it's a mix of sort of jive and uh, um, what was the other oh, anyway it's got a bit of jive in it and all that sort of thing so the guy doesn't actually do a lot so if you've got two left feet don't worry it's great so we learned how to do it and so at this uh, Wedding, I've never before had so many young ladies ask me to dance with them. Once they could see I could dance, guys, we Brits need to learn to dance. Because I tell you what, if I'd known how to do that when I was younger, wow. But anyway, it's celebrating is a way of just letting God know we love him. We love each other. We enjoy each other, and we're part of that, uh, his family, that we're prepared to celebrate together. Now, we don't need, these guys in the Middle East, they didn't need wine to do it. And actually, I really enjoyed that evening more than anything else. And I see people going, you know, getting themselves blotto. And you say to them, did you have a good time? And I say, oh, yeah, I don't remember anything about it, but I had a great time. And I think, how? You know, there's so much joy to have. There's so much joy to experience when we're in our right minds to experience it. Now, I want to take you through the lives of some folk in, uh, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, 
who, uh, particularly in Luke today, who had to, who faced this whole thing of joy and what their reactions were, that they were part of something that God was doing. They were part of something that was happening. Now, these, this particular, as I was reading through it and preparing for it, I realized that this was almost the alternative nativity, and you never see a nativity play with these characters done in this way, and it's Zachariah and Elizabeth. Now, these two get left out of the nativity plays that we have so often. And when you read through Luke, the first chapter of Luke, you can see it. There's almost like, there's like four acts. And I've gotten down as acts in my notes so that I can just as a way of helping me through it. Because as you read each section, and they're quite long, some of the sections, you'll begin to see an amazing thing happening in these people's lives. And I want to read to you first, it's a pity about the arc lights, apologies for that this morning, but uh, I want to read to you from Luke chapter 1, verse 5. I'm just going to use, read a, a short part of, part of it just to introduce you to this, this couple. From verse 5, chapter 1, I'm reading from the uh, New Living Translation. When Herod was king of Judea, there was a Jewish priest named Zechariah. He was a member of the priestly order of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth was also from the priestly line of Aaron. Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all the, Lord commandment, all the Lord's commandments and regulations. They had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive, and they were both very old, very old. <laughs> well, just wanted to, it'll come out in a bit, you'll see. <laughs> Both very old, which is a bit worrying for Carla and myself when I read passages like this. Now, you see that they were both of priestly stock, and he was a priest. He was a priest of Abijah. Now, when they the children of Israel were brought back out of captivity. Only two of the priestly sort of divisions, or whatever you want to call it, groupings, survived. There were actually 24 of them, and only two survived. But what they did was to split them. As they grew in numbers, they split them down into 24 again. And he was part of a group uh, called Abijah's group of priests. And there were so many priests that when it came to worship at the temple, when it came to bringing offerings, when it came to looking after the priestly duties, there were, more, there were less jobs and there were more priests than were actually needed. And so to be able to get a, you know, a chance to get in on the action and be able to serve, even though you've been trained and set apart and you grew up in, in that environment, they, they would draw lots. And so it was Abai the group, Abijah group, uh, one of the groups out of Abijah. So I can't, can't quite get the idea from the scripture there whether it was actually the whole group's turn and they, they did it lots that way or whether it was just a group out of the Abijah division that were taken out. But they had to draw lots to see who would light the incense. Now, if you remember the... Go back to the story of Samuel, 
in the temple. Well, it was a tent of meeting. And he was, and Eli was there. He would, Eli would lie at night just outside the Holy of Holies. And he was there. He, it was his task to make sure the, can, the uh, incense was burning. It was lit twice a day, morning and evening. And it was his job to make sure they were, it was lit and also to lie there in case God wanted to turn up and talk to them. And it was for him. And you know the whole story of Samuel. If you don't, it's worth a read. It's a good story about a little boy who learns how to hear the voice of God. And, of course, Samuel thinks it's, he's being called by Eli, and he's not. It's the angel of the Lord. It's the Lord himself wanting to call him and speak to him and give him his calling in life. But anyway, so these, he, he, it was uh, Zachariah's turn to go down and take part in lighting the incense. And it was, he'd drawn lots, and it was his first occasion at doing this. And he may never do it again. Because of his age, there was a chance, because there were so many priests, and it was a really prestigious thing to be able to go into the Holy of Holies or the Holy Place and to be able to light the incense it was, uh, it was a real, you know, prestigious thing. And he got that. But they lived up in the hill country of Judea. They didn't live around the temple. He probably had a little small holding or a little farm or something up in the hills. And uh, he and his wife, they lived up then, and they were called in. They would meet up and with the others. And, you know, and we read here that they were godly, devout, and pious, but they were childless. Now, that was a shame in their day for the, a couple to be childless and it's interesting how it's recorded that it was the fact that it was uh, Elizabeth's problem that they were childless and that was something which is quite cultural then so it could have been his problem but no it went down that it was Elizabeth's problem so they were childless and it was shameful so they you know maybe that's why they were so devout, they, they had the time to be devout, you know what I mean, they had the time to, to hone in on God, but they were, they made the most of that, they were really, and Elizabeth in particular felt that shame, as we find out later on, but it said that they were very old. Now, I've tried to do some investigation to find out what that meant to be very old, uh, and I couldn't actually get it. I couldn't find it. It was just that they were very old. And when you read the, the whole story, you get the impression that, they, that Elizabeth was past childbearing age. And so they, it wasn't. And uh, Zechariah would have been much, much older in that way. But in that sense, because that's how they tended to marry. But so we see, as I said, Zacharias with his priestly group, he's on duty that week, and he was chosen by lot to burn the incense in the holy place, lit morning and evening. Again, it's not that certain. It doesn't really show whether that was something he was there for a week, and it doesn't really display whether, say that whether it was something he did, he did, he was chosen to do it for the week or whether they took it in turns and they drew lots again, or it was just one day that he did it. But even if it was one day, it was an incredible, incredibly significant day for him. And he went in to the Holy of Holies, and 
he must have had instructions. He was, must have been given instructions. You can imagine they were there with their little writing pads or their um, or on the sand, and they were drawing out. Now this is what you do: you go in there and you light the incense, and when it's lit, you know. And they would have had examples because they couldn't teach them by them going in because it was too much of a holy place. And if you weren't in the right place before God, you could be struck dead. And, of course, they used to have things tied around their ankles, I believe, or whatever, or their big toes. But anyway, around their ankles, they would have something there. So if one of them dropped dead while they were in there, they could be pulled out. And so, you know, he went in with this around his leg. And what we know is that he spent quite a long time in there because an angel appeared on his right. As he was preparing to light and getting the, the oil ready and all that sort of thing, just about to, write and to light it, suddenly this angel appears to him and talks to him. Now, it must have been quite a shock because he said he was startled and frightened. And this angel stood there. I'd love to know what it looked like, but I have a feeling that this angel was actually quite normal-looking. Even though he startled him, he probably thought, you're not supposed to be in here. Get out. You know, that was probably his thinking. You know, what are you doing in here? Just because I'm a novice, even at my great old age, just because I'm, I haven't done this before, why have they sent somebody else in here? You know, you could be put to death for doing this. But no, he was startled. And then the angel began to talk to him. He comforts him. And he says, tells him that his wife He's going to carry, he's going to be pregnant with a son. And they're to name that son John. Now, if an angel appeared to me at my age, and this will be my 68th Christmas to celebrate this year, but if an angel appeared to me, you know, here now, and said to me, Neil, your wife is going to have a son, and you're to name him John, I think I'd have a heart attack. You know, it would be quite a shock to the system. But that angel was there and spoke to him and told him what was going to happen. And, of course, the angel says to him these words that the baby will bring to you and others as well joy and gladness. Joy and gladness. Those two words. In other words, not just you're going to be happy with this news because he wasn't particularly at that point. But he said to you, you're going to be filled with joy and gladness. There's going to be a celebration. You're going to really be hooping it up. And he told him that the baby would be the forerunner for the Messiah. He wouldn't drink alcohol, but he would be filled with the Spirit. He said he will turn back people, to, many to God. But what did Zechariah do? If an angel appeared to you, would you argue with it? Would you argue with the angel? He starts arguing. How can this be? You know, I'm an old bloke. And my wife's very old. You know, that's the sort of tenor of what, how he put it. We're too old. This can't be. And the angel turned to him. He said, you know, give me some proof, he said. And the angel turned to him and said, well... My name's Gabriel. Does that ring a bell? You know, does that say to you who I am? And so he told him he was Gabriel, archangel of the Lord, 
sat in the very presence of God, standing in the very presence of God, ready to do whatever God's bidding was, this archangel came and spoke to him. And not only that, he said, because you've doubted by what you've said, what I'm saying, I'm going to strike you dumb for a while, for a season. And he was dumb for just over nine months, I assume. Normal gestation for pregnancy, and his wife wasn't yet pregnant. But he struck him dumb for nine months. His wife had peace for nine months. You know, it's uh, now that's a, that was a cause of rejoicing, perhaps. But there we go. So he had to come out. And, of course, all the people gathered around and thinking, he's a long time. Is somebody going to pull the cord, you know, pull him out? Is somebody going to drag this poor guy out? They thought because he was so old, he dropped dead, and they thought they would have to pull him out. But no, he gradually staggered out. He couldn't speak, and he just had to gesture. You can imagine him saying, you know, if he, if he was in our culture, he'd be pointing at his ring finger, and he'd be... You know, long hair, and he was going like this. You know, I've just seen an angel. You know, you'd be trying to think of the ways that you would try to express to people what had just happened to you. But the people understood that he had seen something, he'd had a vision that this wasn't just any old time. They were there in prayer for prayer. And it was a long prayer meeting because he didn't come out very soon. And there was some anxiety. But when he did, people were really you know, anxious about what was going on. But then we know the story of, that we have a lot in the nativity plays of Mary and what happens to Mary. And no doubt Luke will talk to you about that at some point, is if you don't know already. But uh, Mary's told to, to go to Elizabeth because he goes home, Zechariah goes home, and it says um, very quickly at the end of it that, uh, he, that he's at home. And the next thing you know, Elizabeth, in verse 24, says, uh, soon, after, soon after, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and went into seclusion. For, for five months and she, her voice was said how kind the Lord is she exclaimed he has taken away my disgrace of having no children I bet she rejoiced I bet she had a lot of joy I bet there was a lot of joy in that home and I bet there were a lot of people saying wow at that age mm. never mind Anyway, uh, so, you know, the, you look so serious, you know. Here's a man in his old age having a baby by his wife who's an old lady. You know, that is quite a, quite a thing to happen. Anyway, the angel had told, the angel Gabriel who'd spoken to Mary about her conception was told to go up and visit her cousin or whatever, auntie or whatever she was, um, up in the hill countries of Judea, hill country of Judea, and to spend some time with her, which was probably wise because you've got an old lady who'd waited many, many years to have a baby, was having one, could have done with some support, and here was a young girl 
who was betrothed but not fully married yet, who was somehow pregnant and perhaps in normal custom shouldn't have been, but she went off into the hill country to find Elizabeth. Maybe her parents sighed a sigh of relief that they wouldn't have to answer all those awkward questions. But off she went. And when she met Elizabeth, Elizabeth was at that point carrying the baby and the baby jumped. Now we know what it's like. I don't know whether you've ever had the opportunity either yourself or with a relative or, or with your partner or whatever. You've ever had that experience of being able to put your hand on a the stomach of a pregnant woman and feel that baby moving. It's a bit much at night when you're trying to sleep and your wife's facing your back and the little thing suddenly gets moving and kicks you in the back. That's, that is a bit, bit much, keeping you awake at night. Terrible business, but there we go. But anyway, this baby leapt within her womb for joy. It jumped. And she was filled. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. So much so that she prophesied that Mary was carrying in her womb the Messiah, as if Mary needed confirmation. She knew what was going on, but she prophesied, you're having the Messiah. And she, used, she says, you, you know, you've got the, you're carrying my Lord in you, she says. So she prophesies that. But she said something very interesting. Remember that Zacharias, Zachariah had actually doubted what um, the angel was t telling him. But here Elizabeth points out the fact that Mary is blessed for believing that the Lord had, what the Lord had told her would really happen. So then we jump a little bit from verse 45 to verses 47, 47, uh, 57 to 66, where the baby's born. And it says there that everybody around was rejoicing. I tell you, I'd rejoice. I wonder if Zachariah still, Zachariah still felt grumpy about what was happening or whether he felt the joy of it as well. But this baby had come... And you see that everybody's jumping for joy, the fact that this baby has come. And it says that, it uses the word rejoices, that people were rejoicing that the baby was born. And that word rejoices, again, is where we share joy and we party together. And so there was a celebration there that they were enjoying at this baby being born. And then eight days later, the baby was taken to the priest the circumcision and while the baby was there it wasn't it, this was a later custom it didn't happen necessarily you know in the early part of uh, of the Hebrew, Hebrew faith and that of the Israelites but later on it was also became the naming time the time of naming the the baby and it was normally the baby was normally named after somebody in your family now, some of you may have experienced this in your own families, that somebody has decided to name their child something different to, hasn't taken on any of the family names. And you get the, the gasp and the sort of, <gasps> yeah, I remember when we named my son, Jonathan, my, my mother, when I told her on the phone, because back then we didn't have, 
we lived 100 miles away and we didn't have FaceTime or anything like that to talk to them. I just spoke down the line and he was actually born this time of year, 40 years ago. And I told my mum that his name was Jonathan Joel and that he would be celebrating his birthday separate from Christmas. Well, my mother was gobsmacked. You know, she thought, oh, we can get away with having just one party and one lot of presents, you know. But no, we're going to celebrate. I set the scene right at the start. He's going to have his own celebration, even though he's so close to, to Christmas. And, but when she heard his name, she said, what on earth caused you to choose that name, those names? And we liked it because one, Jonathan, is, was David's companion. We loved that whole thing. And Joel is, uh, just declares, God is Jehovah. Jehovah is God. Yahweh is God. And we want his, his name to declare the goodness of God in that way. So anyway, he was at the circumcision, about to have the snip, and... Um, they were, they were asked, well, what's the name? And uh, she, Elizabeth pipes up. Now, she must have got this across. He obviously used his tablet. No, his tablet wasn't an iPad or anything like that. It would have been a little sort of object, flat object with like wax on it, and he would have written on, on that. So he'd obviously used something like that or on the sand or whatever. He'd obviously, well, a bit of paint, and he'd told her what the name was going to be and she piped up and she said his name is going to be John because they thought he was going to be called Zachariah like his dad they said John and everybody gasps <gasps> how can you do that how can you get away with doing that but then because everybody was present was confused it wasn't a family name so they went over to Zachariah and they gave him a tablet not a not an aspirin or anything, but they gave him a tablet, one of these wax tablets, and he said, what do you think, Zachariah? What should his name be? Now, Zachariah had had it from the angel. He'd been told what to name, and he wrote it down, John. And everybody was really, really puzzled. But do you know what John means, anybody? Any Johns here? It means Yahweh has been gracious. Yahweh has been gracious. God is good. And so they bless the, obviously bless the baby with the snip and the name. And then um, Zachariah started to speak. So remember, so he'd had over nine months and eight days, probably a little bit longer, where he couldn't speak, and suddenly he could, and he could actually enjoy what God had done. And he began to prophesy, he began to praise God, and he began to prophesy. And he talks about, and I'm not going to go into it because it's quite a long song. You've got Mary's song, which is the, known as the Magnificat, but we also have Zechariah's song, which you don't hear about very often. But in that song, he shows that, uh, that he gives a declaration of God's fulfillment of, of, sorry, a declaration of the fulfillment of God's promise. It was a long time coming. It was the promise maybe that they would have a child 
And there they were in their old age. They'd been praying for years, and the angel had said to them, God has heard your prayer. Maybe it was their personal promise, but it was also the promise of the Messiah was coming, and that there would be a forerunner. And that forerunner, he'd been told, was his son. The hardest part is we don't know whether they ever grew up to see the ministry that he did. Did I say that right? Yeah. So they may not have seen the fulfillment of this prophecy, but he gave it out that it was the fulfillment of God's promise, a declaration of what John's ministry would be, that he would turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, that this, he would be a, a prophet of change, that he would be one who would turn people back to Father God, that he would be one who would prepare the way for the Messiah. It was the promise of a new day, light in the darkness, the shadow of death would be defeated. A light in the darkness and the darkness cannot put it out. So that, that's the little story that we don't hear much about. Obviously you would have if you, as a Christian, as you've read your Bible, but you don't get to hear it done as part of the nativity, and yet it's very much part of the nativity. It's part of the whole message of the gospel, that God was not only going to send Jesus to bring salvation to the world, but he was also going to send a forerunner, and he was going to send him to bring, get people ready. And that's an important ministry, getting people ready to receive Jesus. And that's part of a, you know, skipping into the New Testament, but it's part of a, an evangelist role. It's not just winning people, but it's getting people ready to come to Jesus. I remember an occasion when a guy came to me in church and said, uh, do you remember who I am? I said, I haven't got a clue, sorry. And he said, many years ago, many years ago, about four years ago previously, he said, you witnessed to me, you talked to me on the streets of Cardiff. You were at the end of uh, the Wyndham Arcade and you had some literature in your hand and you stopped me and you talked to me about Jesus. He said, you were the first person that ever talked to me about God's love for me. And he said, I'm here today, loving God, serving God. He said, it was a bit of a journey but I'm here today because you took that first step of talking to me. So people's hearts need preparing. God chooses some of us and not the, the one to bring people to faith, but sometimes we're, we're there to take people on the first part of that journey. So that conversation you have with somebody at work, that conversation you have with a neighbor, that conversation you have with a friend you've known for you've grown up with and known for years can be very very important you may not be one of these people that's able to like they did during the war you know put up a mark on your on your side of your plane to say you've shot this one down mm, great i've won another one for jesus you know um but you know you will be the person that started the ball rolling 
You know, God is, the, the things we learn from this story is that God is not limited by our doubt and our shame. You may doubt yourself. You may think, well, why does God want to use me? Why does God want to use somebody like me? I've had a mess up of a life. I'm not particularly good in front of people or whatever. I'm a shy person or I've, I've so messed my life up that surely God wouldn't want to use me. But you know, God is not limited by your self-doubt. He's not limited by your shame about your past. That's dealt with. He's more interested in your future, where you're going in him. He's much more interested in that. And today, you might feel that, yeah, I'm a Christian, but, you know, I feel I've, I've messed it up a bit. You know, I don't feel like anybody's special. In God, everybody is special. And God wants to use you. Do you hear that? Every one of you is special in him. God wants to use you. And even if you've made a mistake, God's not interested in your mistake. He can still use you. He's not interested in your shame. He can still use you. He can still use you to touch other people's lives. And he's, he's certainly not interested in your self-doubt. Because you were worth it. That Jesus went to the cross and died on the cross because you were worth it. Pull back that, that phrase from a, um, an advert. You know, It's because you're worth it. When you look at yourself in the mirror, you can say, I'm loving God because God believes I'm worth it. And if God says I'm worth it, I must be. Answers to prayer can take a long time, so hang in there. Some answers to prayer do come very quickly. Sometimes they happen overnight. Sometimes you, you can be gobsmacked at how quick those answers to prayer can, come. Carla and I have been praying for a couple across the road from where we live. We've been praying them for a long time. We've lived in our house now over 20 years. And uh, there's this older couple. I say older couple. I think they're older than us. But they're there and the husband is not very well and the nurses go in every day couple of times a day and we pray for them we just pray that God will just speak to them and just be with them and we've been praying that God will give us an opportunity to speak to them and sometimes it's you know you think 20 years praying for your neighbors we make a point of praying for all our street you know all the ones that we know and the ones the familiar strangers that we don't know it's just a habit that we've got into over the years praying for them all these different ones. We prayed for this couple. Last Sunday, I was late to get in here. And the reason was, I think it was last Sunday, yeah, I was late coming into church. And the reason was I'd gone out to the car, and as I got to the car, the lady was on the doorstep, and she called me over. I thought, oh. And she said, I know you're off to church. And I thought, oh. Didn't know she knew we went to church, but she called, so she said, I know you're going off to church. I wonder if you could pray for us. I didn't like to tell her we, we have actually been praying for you uh, for a long time. But she said, would you pray for us? My husband is really ill. And when you get a moment, can you please come in and 
talk to us and I'd like to come to church with you one Sunday. And I thought, I haven't even gone and knocked on the door and said, I'm a Christian, why don't you come to Jesus or anything like that. And she just began to pour her heart out to me about the, how difficult life had been. She said, I used to be a Sunday school teacher, she said, many, many years ago in a particular church in Cardiff. And she said, I, I just lost it somehow along the line. But I'd love to come to church with you. What's your church called? What type of church is it? You know, and all, this, all these sort of questions. I thought, Lord, you are so, so good. So one Sunday you'll see me with this, coming in with this, uh, I was going to say little old lady, but you might think she looks just the same age as Carla and I. But, you know, prayer can take a long time. But hang in there. Psalm 126 verse 6 says, Those who sow in tears will reap in joy. And there may be some prayers you weep over. But the scripture says, They that sow in tears will reap in joy. Maybe not in the way that you think, but God will answer. How we live in everyday matters. In the everyday how it matters how we live. Choose to live in joy. Philippians 4.4, 4, um, Paul says, Be full of joy in the Lord always. I will say it again, be full of joy. And then we read in Galatians again, Paul, he says this about the fruit of the Spirit in you. He said, the Spirit produces fruit, or if you read it in the Passion Translation, it's a, it calls it the harvest of the Spirit in you, which I think is a very interesting expression. It says, the fruit of the Spirit, and you know them. Do you know them? The first couple, we all tend to rattle off, not always the others, but love. And what comes second? Joy. It's a fruit of the Spirit. And you might think, well, I can't always be joyful. How am I going to whip this up? I can't whip it up in any way. You know, I just haven't got it in me to whip it up. Life has been absolutely rubbish. I can't whip it up. It's not meant to be whipped up. It's when we submit our lives to the Spirit, when we give our lives over daily to the Spirit of God, that He puts His joy within us and His love and all the other fruit of the Spirit. He puts them in, and as we allow God to cultivate those gifts within us, as we allow Him those fruit to be brought up in our lives. Even when we're going through tough, terrible circumstances, His Spirit is there. You know, people, I've heard people say, people have said to me, and I've heard them say of others, Christians who are really going on with God, I don't know how they have been able to manage to live through what they faced and be so joyful. Maybe not use that word joyful, but how they've been able to do it and still have a smile on their face. And all I can say in my own circumstance is it's because I've just pressed into God. I'm not perfect by a long chalk, and I've, there have been times when I really haven't felt that, that great about things. But when we press into God, He puts His Spirit in us. He puts his spirit in a way, and as we let him cultivate that fruit, it comes out. But it's making the choice to say, I am going to be full of joy. I am going to be full of joy. 
I am choosing to be full of joy because of the Spirit. Now, that might seem like you're trying to convince yourself, but sometimes we need just to convince ourselves of the truth that what the, the work that God is doing in us. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to find out more about us, visit our website, capcitycardiff.org.uk.